Let's seek the Lord. Continue to seek Him as we come before His Word. We pray, Father, for the illumination of the Spirit of God. We need Your aid to instruct us and help us to understand the text that is before us and its application to our lives. And so we appeal to You to teach us by Your Word, to know that we are formed by this Word. We are brought to saving life by it. We are sanctified by it. It is our life. And so we come before you now and seek you as we open the scriptures, as we have sung them and considered them and read from these pages already this morning. We pray in behalf of those who know not Christ and pray that you would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel to do a work that you alone can do in their hearts. We ask that you would do it and we ask that they would be responsive and seek you and that each one of us would come to this time before the word in submission Seeking to know where we must change, how we can be encouraged, what is your will for our lives. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us in this opportunity. In Christ's name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We have some plowing to do as we complete our journey through this book. But in light of chapter 16, we might think these are just mundane words, but I would say in light of this chapter, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are partners in the greatest enterprise in the universe. Look past the mundane efforts as a church for a moment. Look past our, the routine of our worship gatherings. Look past our familiarity with one another as flawed, weak, and common people. And consider, as Christ's chosen bride, we serve the cause of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We live to proclaim the life-saving, transformational grace and power of Jesus Christ crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again. Nothing less than this is our enterprise. Now, this grand mission is not limited to moments of the church's gathering or outreach or the like. As we go to work, as we wash dishes and change diapers, as we travel about and play games and visit doctors and eat meals, in all of it, we labor as a kingdom of priests in the grandest and most glorious enterprise in the universe. But the center of that, the core of that, is when we come together as God's people, when we labor together as God's people to advance the cause of Jesus. And this is one of the reasons that I enjoy watching the Super Bowl. You think I just got lost there. You see all the hype. You see all the extravagance. All the money. All the lights and pageantry the gathering of celebrities and dignitaries, and then a stadium shaking with the din of 10,000s of cheering fans. And one reason I love to watch those scenes is to consider what we do as the followers of Jesus Christ is way more important. Fans rocking a stadium... Imagine an innumerable host of redeemed voices and angels proclaiming the glories of the Lamb. 
that cacophony will not rock a little stadium. It'll rock the universe. That scene will make the Super Bowl in all its hype look about as exciting as an old, decrepit couple playing cards in a dingy dining room and sipping prune juice. (laughs) If you don't know what prune juice is, don't ask. (laughs) But for now. But for now. We go about the business of serving Christ's kingdom amidst toil and trouble in a messy world that sees none of these glories to come. But this opens the doorway for us to see what lies behind, beyond the mundane, these closing words of Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. We find in this chapter at least three aspects of gospel enterprise which we should emulate as a local church as we do our work together, as we minister as the church of Jesus Christ in very mundane ways, but looking past it to see the glory of it all, we see, first of all here, gospel giving. Gospel giving. Verse 1 of chapter 16, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you credit by letter, I think that's Paul writing the letter, to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. The Corinthian church delivered a letter to the Apostle Paul while he served at Ephesus. So the left star is Corinth. And the star to the right, to the east, is Ephesus, where Paul is stationed as he writes this letter. So they send, first of all, a letter to him with these questions. And for some time, Paul had been raising gifts that would go from the Gentile churches and be given to the church in Jerusalem. There were impoverished believers there. They were suffering famine. There were several unique sociological challenges. Paul saw this gift then as an opportunity to help those in need, but also, more significantly, to bind together the tenuous connection between the Gentile church and the Jewish church, those who were of Jewish background and those of Gentile background. So the the Corinthian church understood this project. In fact, they were willing to contribute to that project. But they had some questions about procedure. How do we do this? How do we go about it? And Paul directs them to follow this standard procedure that we see here uh, as he references it in verse 1. And here it is, verse 2. When? The first day of the week. How? Consider how God has prospered you and give accordingly. Why? Paul wants no spectacular collections when he arrives, just unspectacular weekly installments. Now notice here the word in verse 2, collect. Or uh, Forgive me, verse 1, the collection of the saints. Note that word. That Greek word was never used of taxation. It wasn't collection for taxes. It was used to describe money that was laid down in worship. So think of our resources, our giving. We regularly purchase necessities. 
We spend money on leisure and entertainment. We give gifts to others. But we must have a category of giving money to God's work as an act of religious devotion. Paul has that kind of giving in mind by using this word, the Greek word logias, but also by linking the church's giving we see here to the first day of the week. Paul could have just directed them to say weekly, you pick the day, whatever works best for you. But he links their giving, this religious giving, he links that to the first day of the week, the week on which Christians gathered for worship to commemorate the day that Jesus rose again, marking this new era of redemption. So by tying this weekly giving to the Lord's day, using that word and tying it to the Lord's day, distinguishes it as an act of worship. It seems that they then collected and stored their gifts at the assembly site. This is debatable, but otherwise they would have had to do exactly what Paul says don't do. Wait until I come and then everybody would bring a lot of money, we would hope. He says, I don't want that. Lay it aside weekly. Probably a lot of reasons for that. We'll not get into that. But uh, it is connected to worship. That is the key point here. So there's some principles that emerge from this for our worship as well. First of all, churches should worship the Lord through giving each Lord's day. That's a principle that we find here. I do not believe this passage requires each individual to give every week necessarily, but it's right for a church to worship the Lord this way on a weekly basis. This is a vital aspect of our participation in gospel ministry. Secondly, individual believers should habitually and routinely invest money in Christ's cause. We give to advance his kingdom purposes on earth. And we give to lay up treasures in heaven, as Jesus instructed us in Matthew chapter 6. Third principle is that under the new covenant, giving to the Lord's work is always free will giving. Paul could have required a tithe here, giving a 10% of your income. He does not do that. There might be more than one reason for that, but certainly that is not necessary. Our giving to God's work is a spiritual matter based on his work in our hearts. Did you catch that from the reading this morning? It said there, everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him. So even under the old covenant where there was a tie that was stipulated, the desire was always that the heart would be stirred, that the spirit would be moved, that an individual would say, I want to use what I have for the cause of Christ. I want to invest it in eternity. And now on this side of the cross, there is no percentage, but rather a desire of the heart to give as is right and best. The project is described, appeals are made, but there is never coercion, ever. It is a privilege to partner together in God's work, and Christ is content to let us demonstrate how much we believe in that work. Paul continues to unveil the procedure there in verse 3. When I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit 
by letter. Again, I think this is him writing this letter. But there are individuals that the church will accredit. These, these will be individuals of integrity, individuals that they can trust to transport this money. And first of all, that would provide security. You could not wire the money. It went into bags and coin, and you had to carry those bags by land or sea to Jerusalem. So you needed some muscle. And you needed, secondly, integrity. There needed to be accountability. Individuals that the church trusted to not take these bags of coins and just never show up again. And then thirdly, they would obviously represent the Gentile Corinthian church to the Jerusalem believers. And I think we learn then one more principle here for church giving, and that is the importance of procedural integrity. Gifts to Christ's cause must be meticulously recorded, securely deposited, and handled with strict accountability and integrity. And by God's grace, we see that principle at work in this church every day. And many of you, just with that sentence, would say, I don't. I don't really know what happens. But I can assure you that these are principles by which we are driven. Our deacons do a significant amount of work in counting, recording, depositing, and all by procedure. Our treasure, meticulous care and accountability to the assembly. And I would say, indeed, that all of us should certainly consider in our quarterly meetings, every three months, all that is brought in and all that is spent is displayed for the church to see. We want to continue to operate with that integrity, and in some sense, all of us vet that as we serve together. These are principles I think we rightly draw from passages such as this. But more importantly, the generous giving of God's people is an evidence of God's grace working in our midst. So how we do this procedurally means nothing if gifts are not coming from the hearts of individuals who are saying, I want to participate in the cause of Christ. And this is a way in which he's given us that opportunity to do so. We see that clearly in these first four verses. In verses 5 through 11, we see then secondly gospel travel. I don't know what else to call it, but you cannot spread the gospel unless you move. You cannot form gospel partnerships and advance Christ's kingdom unless you travel about. The gospel enterprise is not like mold that keeps growing happens in our fridge every once in a while it starts little and it just keeps moving out from that center that's not how the gospel works like mold the gospel enterprise is much more like a web of outposts and those points of light are connected by communication or supply lines as we talk and support and strengthen. There are those lines like roads of connection to those various outposts which we seek to stabilize, secure, and encourage. And so we travel. We must. I remember distinctly on a trip somewhere long ago traveling in ministry and thinking, why do I travel? Why do we have to go somewhere? Why do we not just stay where we are 
and continue to work on the gospel there in that place. But I'm thankful for the light of Scripture and maturity and experience to realize this different perspective. The reason is because the gospel doesn't grow like mold. It's gospel outposts and communication lines that connect them. That's what we're about. And we see that so clearly here in this this section. Verse 5, I will visit you, says Paul, after passing through Macedonia, and I will, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Oh boy, did they miss that phrase, if the Lord permits. Back to that in a moment. So, looking at the map here again, Paul is at the Ephesus in the east star there on the map. He intends to head straight north and to work his way to the east and then head south through Macedonia to Corinth and the region of Achaia in Greece. Now, what's he going to do? Obviously, he's going to visit churches there along the way, churches that he had established And perhaps, he says, I I hope to even spend the winter there. In the winter, it might be ill-advised to travel, if even possible, certainly by sea. So he wants to make his way eventually to Jerusalem, and that's not going to happen in the winter. Read Acts 27. And so he hopes that he'll have that type of time with them. And notice there, he also says that I would hope that you then would help me on my way. The word that he uses here is a technical term for providing him with food, money, traveling companions as he carries out his evangelistic work. Now, can you not hear somebody saying, Paul, come on, we're already given money to the church in Jerusalem, and now you're going to come through and you're asking us to supply your way forward in your travels. That's exactly right. I think the attitude of Paul in the New Testament, an attitude that we purposely consider here in our church, is if you don't want to contribute, don't. Be at peace. You can't, if you can't contribute, absolutely no worries. But if you want to join in on what God is doing, here's an opportunity to do so. Here's a second opportunity to do so. There's an interesting thing happening here as well. In chapter 9, you remember the conflict between Paul and the Corinthian church. He refused to receive fees from them and therefore did not play the part of the proper traveling sophist. That didn't make them look good in the culture, and so they didn't like it that he wouldn't receive funds from them. Now he's saying, I'm going to receive funds from you. You see what he's doing. I would not receive funds from you when I was evangelizing in Corinth to protect the integrity of the gospel. But now, you can help me. Send me on my way to spread the gospel. This is where where he's at and what's going on in their relationship. Verse 8, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul's ministry in Ephesus was equal parts fruitful and difficult. Remember 1532? He described his interaction with the opponents 
with his opponents there in Ephesus as dealing with wild beasts. It wasn't easy times. He calls them here adversaries, enemies, opponents. And sadly, Paul was not able to follow through on this plan. And it led to a major explosion in his relationship with them. If the Lord wills, I will come. If the Lord permits, the end of verse 7 there. But he was not able to come in that way and to winter with them. And it led to all types of upheaval. In fact, rather than letting them know he was coming, he makes a very quick visit to them, directly to them. And it leads to all types of struggle and trial takes a lot of time to f- figure out. But you can read all about that in 2 Corinthians. But in Paul's absence, he's sending Timothy, and that makes Paul rather nervous because he was not treated very well by the Corinthian church, and now he's concerned this one who comes in my name, this young man Timothy, now he's very concerned for him. Verse 10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him, help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. With the brothers unknown. But uh, if that's with Timothy or there with Paul. But in any event, he's expecting him to travel back to Paul. Two tasks for them, what are they? First of all, receive this traveling representative of Paul's graciously. Put him at ease. Do not despise him. Secondly, help him on his way. There's a third call for financial support. You see again the necessity of the attitude as your heart stirs you, as you want to participate in the cause of Christ. As he comes, he will need to be supplied for the journey back to me. So see that you meet him there and that you help him there with your resources. And what is it that is to compel the Corinthians to honor these directives and to support Timothy financially? It's this. Do you see it there? Timothy is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Verse 10, at the end, he is doing the work of the Lord. It could almost be taken as blasphemous, couldn't it? We think of Jesus, I always do those works of my Father. You see the Father working, you see me working. And here, what does he say? He's doing the work of the Lord. But it's not blasphemous. And let's think about it for a moment. Let's meditate on the wonder of that phrase. As born-again believers in Christ, we have the privilege to do the work of God. As we learned in chapter 12, the body has many parts. They don't all have the same function, but they serve the same cause and purpose. Think of the energies that are expended day after day, week after week, every month, every year as we serve Christ together. A thousand different tasks, hundreds of different jobs, and in all we are involved in the greatest work in the universe as we do the work of the Lord together by his grace. We could say that Eden Baptist Church has a rather high ministry motor, and this can weary some people. 
We issue no demands. We seek to avoid any improper pressure. But when we consider that we are engaged in the work of the Lord, that certainly does not inspire lethargy, does it? When we think of it, this is the work of God. It's hard work. It takes energy. It's labor. Nursery work is hard. Making, serving, and cleaning up church meals is hard work. Teaching is hard work, as are mission trips and work days. Ushering, it's not exhausting work, but it does call for quick thinking and tact. Hurting people is easier than hurting cats, but hurting people is a lot harder than hurting cows. Closing up the building, decorating it, children's church, adult choir, and all that goes into music, VBS, technological skills, meetings of a thousand sorts, preparations for retreats and seminars. Then there's just the daily care and counsel of one another, including times of great trial, weddings and funerals, and on and on it goes. It is the work of the Lord. And that's the joy of it. Before we grow weary in well-doing, let us always consider this is the center of the greatest work in the universe. The work of God's people, as mundane as it is, as forgotten as it is, we are not the show today, are we? In light of a Super Bowl, nobody thinks of this as a super gathering. For now. We just say, to this dying world, just wait. Just wait. This is the work of the Lord, and it's the most important work in the universe. May God give us wisdom and strength to do the work of the Lord, knowing that it is never in vain. And so we travel about, and we work doing many, many things for his cause. Then thirdly, we see gospel partnerships. This could be divided up differently And of course, in some sense, the whole chapter is about gospel partnerships. But here, Paul gets very specific as we come to verse 12 and consider Apollos. Just reminding ourselves of Apollos as we read this. Remember, Apollos is one of of those great speakers that had ministered to the church. And there were many who liked Apollos a lot more than Paul. There were factions, and they really thought Apollos had it right and Paul did not. Think of that background here as we read verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will. Not to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. You see the marginal note, the original just says it was not the will. Whether that's God's will or his, and I don't know that we need to divide. It just wasn't right for him to come at this point. But think of this. This provides clear evidence that the divide that they had, the factions that they had, had nothing to do with the teachers themselves. He's not angry at Apollos. He's not in competition with Apollos. In fact, he urges him to go. They want you to come and minister the gospel? Go and minister to them. Now, if Paul thought of this as his church, as some have noted, because he led them to Christ, Apollos would be one of the last guys he wanted to go to Corinth. It's not his church. It's Jesus' church. And so he says, I tried to get Apollos to come, but he did not believe it was a good time. 
And he doesn't demand that Apollos go either, does he? He leaves it with his decision. Unless your name is Wilhelm Farrell, coercing a minister of the gospel to serve where you want, never ends well. If you don't know who Wilhelm Farrell is, you can look it up later. But just, we don't do that. We don't say, you must go here. It's what does God want. The emphasis then is on collaborative effort and strategizing as Paul urges Apollos to go. Verse 13 seems to fall out of nowhere, but I think it's softening them for what is to come. But notice it, these exhortations. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. This brief insertion of exhortations uh, connecting to what he's going to now say, but to be watchful means to stand against false doctrine and moral attacks. Be aware of them. We are to stand firm in true doctrine. We are to act like men, a figure of speech for courage. And we are to be strong in Christ, to stand for Jesus. They were failing on many levels to stand against the onslaught of the Corinthian culture, and Paul calls them to attention. Leading to, verse 14, coupled with, let all that you do be done in love. There are Christians who are very courageous and known for their bravado, but show little love toward others. There are Christians who love others, but have the backbone of a jellyfish. This balance is Jesus. That's where we're moving. It's in his image. The one who in love laid down his life for his people. Who made the ultimate sacrifice of dying to pay the cost of the sins of his people. But who stood up to the greatest onslaught Satan has ever mounted against anyone. A heart of self-giving, tender love matched with a backbone of titanium. Stood his ground, loved his people. And in one sense, does that not summarize the commands of the whole book right here? Let all that you do be done in love. You do the work of the Lord May it be done in love. This would solve the factions. Think of the book. This would solve the factions, chapter 1. This would solve the infighting, the lawsuits, chapter 6, the adultery, the fornication, the marital withdrawal. This would solve the divisions at the Lord's Supper. This would, have, would resolve how they were using gifts in the assembly to promote themselves. All of this is solved by love. By saying that I live for others, that I put their interests ahead of my own, that I sacrifice self for the good of the church. Now all of this, as I said, was likely to soften them up to what he's about to say as we continue on with the theme of Christian partnership. Verse 15, now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and labor. A Greek household often included far more than just a family. It was the slaves that were part of the household, 
multiple uh, generations of relatives, and uh, sometimes freedmen would, would identify with a household and serve that household in their freedom. Stephanus held a leadership role in the Corinthian church, apparently had others living with him also that supported Paul's ministry. So Paul appeals to the church to honor such spiritual leaders for their good, for the good of the church. He is a fellow worker and laborer, we just read, the text says, in the work of the Lord. So Stephanus represented the church by carrying this letter of questions to Paul in Ephesus. And so Paul says, receive such individuals, be subject to them as they give leadership and direction and serve the church. Continuing on, he says, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. That is, they have brought your letter and they are now ministering to me. It may be, intriguing idea, but we can't prove, but it may be that Fortunatus and Achaicus were slaves or freedmen in Stephanus' household. The reason for saying that is Fortunatus means fortunate or lucky, and Achaicus speaks of one who comes from Achaia, and these were common names for slaves in southern Greece. Whatever the case, here are three men in the Corinthian church who are supportive of Paul and a source of refreshment to him. We see the partnership here. Their coming has refreshed my spirit has given me strength of heart. I'm so thankful that they are here. I would like to be everywhere present to be with you, but they are here representing you. And so they've refreshed me. And in that sense, dealing with this responsibility, they have refreshed you. They have refreshed, verse 18, my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. They they are Paul's partners... But their reception, it seems, is in doubt. And so he gives this word of support and counsel in partnership with them. There is a shift then, as we move toward the end, the final words, of the fellowship between churches and greetings that are passed between the churches. Think again of the points of light and the communication roads between. Here's communication to say that we are partnering together we are in the same cause. Verse 19, the churches of Asia, that's the, not Asia as we think of it, but the province, the Roman province of Asia to the east, send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. We have no time to consider Aquila and Prissa, uh, Priscilla as she's often known, But suffice it to say here that they housed a church in their home, and in more than one. And that takes a lot of sacrifice to have a church meeting in your home. But they used their resources that way. We see again this emphasis on partnership in the cause of the gospel. Verse 20, all the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Again, greetings and holy kiss. That was a customary greeting by kissing on the cheek. Still in some cultures today, not so much in ours. You probably don't want to try that Uh, for somebody who's not expecting it. That will be quite the shock. 
But what do we do in our greetings within our culture? It's a handshake. Maybe it's a hug. Maybe it's an affectionate touch on the arm. It doesn't have to necessarily be physical touch, but it's certainly commended here. And that is what the point is and the principle is to greet with warm affection. That's the idea. Notice here, this is not a suggestion. Nor is it a word limited to extroverts. There are people who are really good at greeting you. People that aren't, it's just harder. It's just a struggle. But we do need to take to heart here, this is God's will. It isn't a suggestion. Greet one another warmly is the word of the Lord. Warm, Warm greetings as brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't think we begin to understand how that serves love how it puts Christ on display. There is a reception there that has been won by the death of Christ and his reconciling power. And so to greet one another is a ministry to one another. It is an extension of love to one another. Some of us are good at it. Some of us really aren't. But let's remember it's a command. How we love one another and put Christ's love on display a far richer investment in our sanctification than we probably recognize. Verse 21, he now takes the pen from the amuensis. Paul writes this greeting with my own hand. He says, verse 21, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. It doesn't hit us the way it would hit them, but it's anathema maranatha. Anathema, let him be accursed. Maranatha, our Lord, come. So there's really only two people in this world, ultimately. Those who do not love Jesus Christ and those who long for his return. There's those two, and that's what he draws our attention to here. It causes each of us to ask him, which side of the divide are you? Are you one who longs for the return of Christ because you've been reconciled to God through his sacrifice? Or do you turn from the Lordship of Christ? Anyone who has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Now, of course, Paul would include unless he comes to repentant faith in Jesus. But this, again, causes us to ask, what side of the divide am I on? Is it clear by the way that you live your life that Jesus is the master of your soul? You do not perform perfectly. You sin and need to confess your sin and repent. But could someone studying your life and reading your mind say, it is clear that the Lord of this Christian brother or sister is not the flesh, is not Satan, is not this world and its ways. This individual is submissive to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and longs for his return. If you do not long for the return of Christ today, that's not in your heart. You are not longing for the only thing that will satisfy your soul. The only thing in the end that will matter is Jesus Christ. We will bow the knee before him and we will find in him either the Lord we hate and have no interest in being with through eternity, or the Lord that we love. What is it for you? If you know that you're divided from him today, today is the day to move. 
Today is a day to come to him. Today is a day to reach out and ask for his grace to see him for who he is and to understand what he has done. What has he done? Verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. There is a grace that's extended to sinners and we all embrace it. Those who receive the lordship of Christ, those who yet resist it, there is a grace of God that is extended and he extends then his love, verse 24, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus, amen. 24 is just dripping with grace. Paul has said some very hard things, but he assures the Corinthians that this is not because he loves them less, as one has noted, but because he loves them more. I love you. That's why I've told you to turn from your sin and follow Christ, to get your church aligned with Jesus' will. Brothers and sisters in Christ is a long chapter, a lot of text here, and so much to consider further. But I just say in light of this chapter, again, we are partners in the greatest enterprise in the universe. One who does not know Christ as Savior (coughs) looks at this chapter and says, it's nothing. This is a bunch of busy people talking to each other and saying hi. But because we belong to Christ, everything that we do, all of our waking Ours is the work of the Lord. But we see our life together as a called out assembly on display in these closing words. And we know that there is an eternity behind it. A weighty glory that will never end. And so we give to the advance of Christ's cause. We give away wealth in order to stabilize Christian outposts. We give away efforts to stabilize them. We give to support missionaries, and we go to support churches. We handle resources then with integrity. We travel to strengthen the lines that connect the thousand points of light at the gospel beachheads. We build up other assemblies, traveling to refresh, to edify, to teach. We build up then, we build up, and then recognize spiritual leadership. We strategize for gospel advance. We devote ourselves to the service of the saints and labor to do God's work in this world. And we warmly receive our brothers and sisters in Christ as a community of the redeemed who rejoice to love. We strive to live a life of love, seeking one another's best as Christ has sought our best. And we look to his return This is the greatest enterprise in the universe. And by the grace of God, by the grace of God alone, we are part of it. We are part of it. And we will be for all eternity. Lord, how rich we are, how little we recognize it. I pray that as we consider the labors, the travels, the giving, the work of the Lord, the love between believers in this chapter, that it would deepen our appreciation for the work to which you have called us. And I pray that as we gather in small groups today, many of us, and all of us as we meditate on these words, that we would go from this place and that we would not grow weary in well-doing. As we talk through how to balance 
the work of the Lord with all of the other things that we do and how to rightly see all of it as integrated. Help us to think by way of application and how best to serve you. But Father, I pray here for those who are separated from the work of Christ because they're separated from Christ himself. I pray that you'd bring conviction. I pray that you would bring salvation this day. And for those of us who know you, Lord, help us to serve you well. May we do the work of the Lord in whatever calling that is. Many body parts, one head, Jesus Christ. May we serve you with gladness and joy in the most mundane and simple tasks. In the greater, more challenging tasks. Whatever it is that you assign to us, whatever it is that you give us to do, however it is that you move our spirit to give to your cause, time wealth, and talent. We leave that before you and ask, Lord, that as a church we might be a beehive of activity into the coming years serving the name of Jesus Christ. Deepen us, Lord, to that level, we pray. Continue to grow, convict, and change us. We pray it in the name of our Savior. Amen.